also uh, ran out of creative titles for message series, so this is the brand new series. Um, two, two weeks, three weeks out of Easter. Um, here are two words that make me a little skeptical. My guess is that they make you skeptical as well. Unlimited and unconditional. Unlimited and unconditional. Unlimited coverage. Are you sure? Because I think there's always that one room in my house whenever I try to make a call, I can't get a signal. So I don't think it's that unlimited or unconditional. Have you ever signed an unconditional agreement and wondered what does the fine print say? What does that look like? Whether it's a cell phone agreement, whether it's a contract, it's an insurance policy, some kind of service, there's almost always a catch, isn't there? It's almost always something that, eh, we're not going to tell you the whole thing. We're just going to tell you it's unlimited. We're just going to tell you it's unconditional. And it's not just with um, cell phone agreements. It's not just with insurance policies. It's not just with college meal plans. We have a tendency to take this idea of unlimited and unconditional and the skepticism we have behind it and attach it to our relationship with God. Like, I hear, I hear the preacher saying that. I, I hear you talk, you know, in Sunday school, I learned about unconditional love and, and unlimited grace and all of those kinds of things. But, but I don't think God's un is big enough for me. I don't, I just, I just don't, I just don't buy it. I just don't see how it can actually be reality. And so if you're skeptical, if you think there's a catch, I'm so glad you're here today to hear and to talk about what we're going to talk about. Um, three weeks away from Easter, okay? Um, Easter is the pinnacle. The resurrection is the high point of our faith. Um, but there were a few things that happened leading up to Easter that I just want us to talk about, I want us to think about, I want us to unpack um, as we lead towards this, this, this moment, this event in history that happened on that first resurrection um, Sunday. There are a few things that Jesus rolled out before he rolled away the stone that I want us to think through and I want us to talk about. And we're going to pick up the story today um, as Jesus and his followers are heading towards Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Passover is this yearly celebration where, where the Jews would come together and they would remember, they would celebrate what God did um, for their ancestors in rescuing them um, from Egypt. It was a little bittersweet for first century Jews because Israel at that point was an occupied territory. So for first century Jews, they're remembering and they're celebrating God's liberating activity in their past, but they can't celebrate God's liberating activity in their present. They're in bondage. They're not in slavery like they were um, in, in Egypt, but they, they're still um, they're still constricted. They're still occupied. And so thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims pour into Jerusalem. The streets are full. Uh, the street vendors are making money. All the hotels are full. It's kind of like the state wrestling tournament whenever it comes to Topeka, okay? Just all kinds of people, all kinds of activity going on. And um, Jesus and his guys are headed that way. John tells us this. The next day, this is actually five days before Passover actually began, the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He'd been kind of in the outskirts. Um, he'd been in the surrounding villages. They're getting ready to enter Jerusalem, and rumors start flying. And by, by ancient standards, Jerusalem was a pretty big city. 
But there were still rumors. There were still murmurs. People were talking, okay, which, um, which way is he coming from? Which gate is he going to come in through? Jesus is coming. There's this buzz all throughout Jerusalem. And, and the reason there's a buzz, the reason that they're so excited is because they thought maybe this is the year. Like maybe this is the moment in history where the Messiah is going to make himself known and will not, will not only be able to celebrate Israel's freedom from Egyptian bondage, we'll be able to celebrate Israel's freedom from Roman bondage. And the city will be full of patriots and we can proclaim Jesus as our king. So Rome is nervous. The religious leaders are really nervous. There's a buzz. Everybody's on the lookout for Jesus. And when they see him from a distance, word travels quickly. People line up on both sides of the road. I know Palm Sunday isn't until next week, but we're going to go there this week. Okay? Starting there this week, they took palm branches, went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. That's kind of a fun word. We sing songs about that on Palm Sunday. But you know what it means? Save us now. Save us now. This is a prayer that the Jews prayed for hundreds and hundreds of years. But in this moment, they're projecting that prayer onto Jesus as he comes in to celebrate Passover. But then it escalates. It goes beyond that. They started to say, blessed is he who comes in the name or who comes in the authority of the Lord. They're placing authority on him. And then it just gets overtly political. Blessed is the king of Israel. They want a king. They want a political savior. They thought Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to do something for the nation. But in fact, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to do something for the world. For you. And in the next few days, Jesus is going to say things. Jesus is going to do things that make absolutely no sense to them. Actually, it won't make sense to them until after, weeks later, after the resurrection. In the next few days, Jesus would fulfill God's promise to Abraham and replace God's covenant with Israel. This was all brand new because centuries before this Passover, God made a promise to Abraham that he would become a great nation and that he was going to bless the entire world through that nation. Jesus was about to fulfill that promise. And in fulfilling that promise, he would replace the covenant that he made with Israel. So for the next few days, Jesus kind of evades the religious leaders because the religious leaders were on the lookout for him. The religious leaders knew that Jesus was coming, and they knew if they could take Jesus out, if they could, if they could find him, if they could separate him from the crowd, they could arrest him, they could try him, if they could kill him, then we can just be done with all of this Jesus stuff and we can move on with our life. But Jesus evades them. He even goes to the temple in broad daylight that week, but he slips away before they can catch him. And then two days before Passover starts, the religious leaders finally catch a break. They, they, they finally get an answer to one of their prayers. And one of Jesus's guys breaks rank. And Luke tells us, Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. And the religious leaders were delighted. You know why they were delighted? Because they were scared. They were scared. They were worried. 
that if Jesus really was who he thought he was or really was who they thought they were, they were afraid if Jesus became king and declared himself Messiah, they would lose their power. They would lose their connection with Rome. They would lose their money. They were afraid to declare Jesus as king because of what they thought they would lose. And perhaps that's the reason that you refuse to make Jesus your king. Because you're afraid of what you're going to lose. But they were about to discover Jesus didn't come to take something. Jesus came to give something. So the religious leaders, they're delighted. They agreed to give Judas money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So the stage is set, right? Kingdoms of this world versus the kingdom of heaven. The kingdoms of this world, with their top-down hierarchy, with their, their violence-oriented arrangements, with their imperial systems, the kingdoms of this world versus the kingdom and the plan of God. And the kingdoms of this world, their plan would actually succeed, but their objective would not. And because unlike them, Jesus did not cling to his life, it was his intention all along to give it away. But before he did that, before we get there, there were two loose ends that he had to tie up, and the Passover meal is the perfect opportunity to do that. So he sends a couple guys into the city to scope out a place for them to celebrate this Passover meal together, kind of off the beaten path, kind of away from the crowd so that they wouldn't be disturbed, they wouldn't be interrupted. Jesus knew what was getting ready to happen over the next couple days. He knew that these were the last few conversations that he would have with his guys. And so that as they begin the Passover meal... Something happened, and, and it's hard to explain this. It's hard for us to get our minds around it, but it was so odd. I am absolutely convinced the disciples weren't fully aware of everything that this meant. Again, until weeks later, weeks after the crucifixion, weeks after the resurrection. So here's what happened, according to Matthew. He says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat this is my body. Luke's version adds, this is my body given for you. And before they took their first bite, I kind of imagine them kind of looking at each other, kind of like out, out the side of their eye like this, like, did he just say what we thought he said? This is, this is his body? <laughs> but Jesus wasn't finished. It got even more offensive. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of, and they could have interrupted him right there and said, Jesus, we know what we're doing this in remembrance of. We've been doing this in remembrance of something since we were little boys. Like we're doing this in remembrance of what God did for our ancestors when he rescued them from Egypt. We know exactly what we're doing this in remembrance of. And I kind of imagine Jesus smiling and saying, that's, that's all changing. From now on, whenever you celebrate Passover together, you're going to do this in remembrance of me. And, 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 and Gentiles, you need to know, which all of us are to the best of my understanding. Gentiles, you need to know, every single one of them should have got up and left the room at that point. Every single one of them. Because this was so offensive. This was, okay, Jesus, listen, 
I know you've kind of contradicted Moses a little bit to tick off the religious leaders, and we get that. That's why we're doing this in, in private. Like, we can't do it with a whole bunch of people. You can mess with the religious leaders. I guess we're okay with you messing with Moses. But Jesus, you can't mess with Passover. You can't make Passover all about you. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, imagine this December, first Sunday in Advent. I, I come up here and I say, hey guys, uh, it's December, we're heading towards Christmas Day. And uh, usually this time of year, we tend to focus on Jesus' birth. But this year, we're going to focus on my birth. Like every week we're going to come, I had Mark write some songs about me, we're going to sing those songs, we're going to have a Tim Eve service with um, candles, we're going to talk about how great I am, um, Christmas morning you're all invited to my house, we'll read my birth story, we'll talk about how my parents lost me when I was six at the roller skating rink, um, and it'll be great. Remember to bring a gift because it's about me, and from now on Christmas is going to be about me right? And everybody would leave the church. <laughs> and you should. If anything ever happens like that, you should leave the church. Something terrible has happened right here, <laughs> right? Here's my point. What the disciples experienced that night was even worse than that. What they were experiencing, Jesus, you're great and all. I kind of think the triumphal entry is getting to your head a little bit. You can't make Passover all about you. This was brand new. It was brand new. But he wasn't done. They eat their meal. Who knows what's running through their minds. Then Jesus takes it another step. Luke tells us in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is to which they could have said, we know what this cup is. This cup represents the blood that was shed the night our ancestors left Egypt. They took the blood of the lamb, they smeared it around the doorpost, the angel of death came into town, it passed over those houses, and, and, and God rescued them. We know exactly what the cup is, so if we could just please stick with the 1,500-year-old script, Jesus. You can't make Passover about you, and and. And listen, I'm taking a little bit of license with the story because I just want you to understand how extraordinarily disruptive this would have been for those Jewish boys. It was brand new. It was out of the ordinary. It was completely disruptive. But Jesus is in the same way. After the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant. Not a new covenant, the new covenant. This cup is always represented. God's covenant with Israel, that his, his relationship, because that's what a covenant is. It's entering into a relationship, a formal relationship. It always represented the relationship between God and, and, and Israel. And from now on, Jesus says, when you take this cup, you're celebrating, you're pointing to, you're living in a brand new covenant that starts right here tonight at this table. And, and, and if they'd been paying attention in Sabbath school, they'd know that the prophet Jeremiah, one of their own prophets, predicted that this would happen 650 years earlier. 650 years earlier, Jeremiah said that God is going to establish a new covenant 
with Israel to replace the current covenant. Here's what Jeremiah said. The days are coming, so pay attention. Somebody take notes. Anybody writing this down? Get ready. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. The covenant that God made when Moses and the stone and the, the, the laws on stone with Israel and all the rules, all the stipulations, all the it, I will if you will, and if you don't, I won't. Jeremiah said 650 years earlier that covenant's not going to last forever. There's going to be a new one. It's coming, so pay attention. And they weren't thinking straight. Next week, we'll look at this even more. There's no way they could have thought straight because this was so out of the ordinary. This was so disruptive. But if they would have been thinking straight, the question they should have asked is, okay, if you're establishing a new covenant, what kind of covenant is going to be? What, like, what, what kind of covenant is this? And Jeremiah answered that question. 650 years earlier, he said, here's the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant. He says, I will put my law, the law that was written on stone and was given to Moses and he came down from the mountain in the new covenant. There's going to be a new law. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. Like you're not going to have to memorize 600 plus laws. It's going to be a covenant of conscience. This is brand new. But it had been promised 600 plus years earlier. So let's hit pause for a minute on Jesus and his disciples. And let's talk about ancient covenants because I know you guys woke up this morning hoping we would talk about ancient covenants. I'm here to please. All right. So we'll come back to Passover in a minute. But I want us, I just, I just want you to understand the significance of what's happening in this room that night, okay? There were essentially three kinds of ancient covenants. There will not be a test on this, but I think you should pay attention, okay? The first kind of covenants was called a bilateral parity treaty. It's one of the ancient ways that people would make these covenants. Um, this is a covenant or an agreement between two equals, they have equal power. They have equal standing. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a covenant. It's a relationship that says, if, if you, I. And if you don't, I won't. Um, think of it like a business contract. In modern day terms, that would be a business contract. Okay, So it's two individuals holding an equal standing, forming an agreement together. That's the first kind of covenant. Second kind of covenant is a bilateral suzerainty treaty. Okay? Now, a suzerain is a king, it's a czar, it's an emperor, it's a conqueror, it's somebody with a lot of power. And the way this worked is the person with, with power would dictate terms and conditions to a lesser power, a vassal. Okay? So the king would come in, or the czar, the emperor would come in and say, here's the rules, here's the laws, and this is what you're going to do. You don't have a choice in the matter. Um, one way to understand this in modern day terms is to think curfew, right? Son, daughter, these are my keys. That is my car. I paid for it. So you will be home at 11 o'clock tonight or you will no longer have access to my keys and my car. And the child, the, 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 the vassal, has no say in the matter at least in my home, right? 
the, the suzerain, the parent, the authority says, this is what's going to happen. We're not really debating this. This is just what's going to happen. It's a bilateral suzerainty treaty. Here's the interesting thing about this one. God's covenant with Israel was a suzerainty treaty. It was like curfew. God gave them all the rules. He gave them all the terms and conditions. You can read about those in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. They're really important, but they're really boring. And you kind of go, what do I do with these? And the answer is nothing, because you aren't a part of ancient Israel. God gave those to ancient Israel. We read them and go, what in the world? But we got to remember, God was forming a nation from people who had been in slavery for 400 plus years. They don't know how to live in freedom. They don't know where the boundaries are because their entire existence has been, this is when you get up, this is when you work, this is what you do, this is what you don't do, this is when you go to bed, and you're going to do it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day until you're dead. God had to be specific with them because he's creating a brand new Society and, and the relationship, the covenant was, if you will, I will. And if you don't, I won't. It was very clear. Follow me, obey me, and you'll be blessed. Worship other gods, and you won't be. You'll face the consequences. And over and over and over throughout their history, you see Israel, they do good for a little bit, and then they start worshiping other gods. They do good for a little bit, and they go off the bandwagon, right? And eventually, it got to the point where God, and parents, you'll appreciate this, God put them in timeout, right? Timeout started with God. He got tired of it, and he sent them to Babylon. It was a 70-year timeout. But eventually, he let them come back into the land. So this covenant between God and Israel was a suzerain vassal treaty. I'm the king, you're my subject, here are the rules. If you don't obey, you'll face the consequences, but if you do obey, you'll be blessed. That's the second kind of treaty. The third, third kind of covenant, it was com common in ancient times, was called a promissory covenant. Promissory covenant. In this kind of covenant, one party binds itself to an obligation for the benefit of the other party. Did you catch that? One party makes a promise to the other party for the benefit of the other party. It's not bilateral. It's not if I will, you will, and if, if, if I don't, you won't, or if you won't, I won't. It's not bilateral. It's unilateral. It's I will regardless of you. And if you don't, I still will. It's unilateral. It's unconditional. The best way to understand this and the analogy falls short. But the best way to understand this is, is, is middle school crush. Okay? You either wrote the note, got the note, or your friend lets you read the note, and the note went like this. Oh, baby, 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 baby. I promise to love you forever and ever and ever, even though your family's moving to San Francisco. I'm going to love you, and I'm going to call you, I'm going to text you every day. XO, 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 XO right? It was unconditional. It was all one-sided because she never wrote you back, did she? <laughs> the promise of unwavering love, right? It's all one-sided. Now, 
If you were in middle school and you had a crush, I hope you didn't ratify that relationship by killing the neighbor's cat, which brings me to a really important part of ancient covenants, okay? When it came to ratifying, when it came to saying, this is what we're going to do in every single kind of ancient covenant, something had to die in every single one. And depending on how wealthy the parties were, they would take the animal, they would take the animals, they would literally cut them in half, they would lay them open, and every party involved in the covenant would walk in between those animals. The phrase cutting deals or to cut a deal, that's that's where that language comes from. Ancient covenants. And as they walked through those dead animal parts together, they were essentially saying, may it be unto me, as it is with this very unfortunate animal, if I violate the terms of our covenant. Like, I I am pledging my life. This is how serious this was. I'm pledging my life if I don't follow through on my side of the covenant. It's a blood covenant between two parties. But in the promissory covenant, only one person is making the promise. When they, when they sliced the animals open, instead of both parties walking through, only one walked that path. Why is that? Because only one party in the covenant is making a promise, regardless of what the other party does or not. It's all on me. Now, interestingly, when, you, when God appeared to Abraham and made his promise to Abraham about making him a great nation and blessing the whole world through him, you can read this in Genesis. They cut open several animals, and Abraham never passed in between those animals. He never passed. Why? Because God was saying, Abraham, I'd really like for you to cooperate with me on this. I'd really like for you to come with me on this. But even if you don't, I'm making you a great nation. And I will bless the world through you, even if you don't. I will. It's a promissory covenant. So here's the question. Here's the question that night at Passover. Okay, God's establishing a new covenant, not with a nation, but with the world. What kind of covenant is it going to be? What kind of covenant are we talking about here, Jesus? And Jesus answered that question in the way he explained the new covenant. Jesus talked about the cup representing the new covenant, and the next statement clarifies what kind of covenant it was going to be. This cup is the new covenant. What's it say? In my blood. In my blood. I will play the role of the animal that's split in two, that's sacrificed to ratify this new covenant, to which they should have said, okay, what's our part? Jesus answered that too which is poured out for you. He said to the guys in that room that night, who would later write it down so we could have it, you are on the receiving side. I, as a representative of God, am on the giving side. Another way to say it, It's all on me, and it's all for you. It's 100% on me. It's 100% for you. 
Matthew's account adds a few words. This is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now remember, most of what Jesus said that night, there was so much emotion, there was so much confusion, there was so much stuff going on in their minds. It doesn't make sense until after the crucifixion. But Jesus, what do you mean this new covenant is going to be in your blood? You're the most popular person in this city. Like They're just waiting for you to, to declare yourself king. And, 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 and what, what, what do you mean this new thing is going to be ratified in your blood for the forgiveness of sins? We've already got that taken care of. That's what the temple is for. We go to the temple. We sacrifice an animal. That's where we get forgiveness of sins. Once a year, the, the high priest sacrifices the animal, and we get forgiveness for our sins. You're talking about you're the animal that's killed, which results in the forgiveness of my sin? Jesus, even if that was true, you can only spill your blood once. So one person gets forgiven. We get forgiven one time, and, and they, they should have seen this coming again, but they didn't. They should have seen it coming because when Jesus first stepped onto the stage as an adult, John the Baptist said to the crowd on the banks of the Jordan River that day, look, Everybody, look, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away single-handedly all by himself. He comes to take away the sin of the entire world. John the Baptist was pointing to this night. He was pointing to what would happen over the next couple days. And, and, and the next day, the next day, this new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of your sin, for your right standing with God, would be officially ratified with Roman nails and Roman brutality. And the empire, the Roman empire, that best represented the kingdoms of this world was victorious for a moment. God was up to something brand new. This new agreement, this new covenant, this new relationship between God and the entire image-bearing rebel race for every nation in every generation was the final, everlasting, final covenant that would fulfill God's promise to Abraham and replace God's covenant with a nation of Israel. It was unconditional. It was a promissory covenant. It was unlimited, one-sided. And Jesus would be the one to give his life as a representative of God. Would there, would there be terms and conditions like God's relationship with Israel? The answer is yes. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But they would be nothing like the terms and conditions that God gave to Israel when he established his covenant with them. In fact, if you, if you were to ask John, who was there that night? John who was at the cross when Jesus was crucified. John, who had his arm around Jesus' mom and took care of her for the rest of her life. John, who peered into an empty tomb. John, who had breakfast with Jesus on the beach three days later. John, who wrote down, spent the rest of his life making sure the rest of the world knew what took place. John, if you were to ask him, John, it sounds too good to be true, but if it's true, how do I get in on that? 
Like how, how, if it's for me, how do I make it mine? Some of the best words ever written. Some of John's best work. John would say, whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in, whoever says yes to him, whoever does that shall not perish. You won't be left out of that relationship. You won't be left out of that covenant. They shall not perish, but have eternal brand new life. Come on. Who would say no to that? Why wouldn't you say yes to that? In fact, I, if, if you were to say to Peter, Peter, it sounds all good, but, but how do I make it mine? I think Peter's answer would have been even more simple than that. Peter would have just talked about the day that he first met Jesus. And Jesus came up to me, he said, let's go fish. And I was like, Jesus, you're a carpenter. Stay in your lane, bro. We know. <laughs> but we went fishing and we caught so many fish, the boat started to sink. And it was at that moment that I realized he's in a different category than me. And I, I fell to my knees. I'm not even worthy to be on the same boat as this guy. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, I know all about you, but here's all I want you to do. Follow me. Follow me. That's what he said to Peter. That's what he said to Matthew. That's what he said to James and John. Just follow me, ladies and gentlemen. That's the invitation to the new covenant. Follow me. Jesus knows all about you. He knows what you've done and what you failed to do. He's know what you've promised and what you've failed to follow through on those promises. He knows you can't even keep your own rules. And he knows you've broken all of his. And all of that has been covered and under his unlimited, unconditional covenant he established in his blood. Jesus says, it's 100% on me, 100% for you, so just come on. Would you just follow me with all your questions, with all your doubts, with all your baggage? Would you just... Follow me. And if you say, Tim, it, it can't be that simple. It's that simple. It's that simple. But Tim, what about, I know, I know, but we are just used to how relationships and covenants work in this world. Jesus came to establish a different kind of kingdom and a brand new covenant. And that night, it's as clear as day that he had come to replace the covenant that was already in place. This is the part, especially for a church kid who's grown up in and around the church, struggles with, and I'll probably always struggle with this. It always disturbs me. I kind of hope it always disturbs me. But Jesus established something brand new, which means the old way of relating to God is done. The temple model is done. Is anybody sacrificing animals at the temple anymore for forgiveness of sins in Jerusalem? <laughs> no. That ended around 70 AD. It's, 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 it's offensive. It's disturbing. But there's a brand new covenant in town. And praise God there is. But there was one more loose end that Jesus had to tie up. And so don't miss next week. All right? Let me pray for us, and we'll get out of here. 
Father in heaven, thank you for Matthew and Luke and John. Thank you for inspiring them. Thank you for being with them. Thank you for helping them write these things down so that we can have an account of what you did that night, of how you, you, you fulfilled this promise, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old promise to Abraham, and you replaced the covenant that you had with Israel. And God, every time we take that cup and every time we take that bread and it comes into our bodies, you have promised that your spirit will be in and with us, just like that bread, just like that juice. That you establish this law as a, as a covenant of conscience that your spirit is with us. And we're so grateful that we have your word, that we have your spirit, that we have your people. And God, we want to be people that continually, continually remind ourselves of what this good news is, what it means for us, what it means for the world, what it means for those who don't know about it, for those who have rejected it. God, would you help us to be the kind of people who live in and live out the good news that you've established, you've made a way for us to have a relationship with you that's, that's 100% on you, but it's 100% for us. And God, it's the, it's the thing that helps us to love our neighbor as ourself. It's the thing that help, helps us to, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. It's completely unnatural. It's supernatural. It's the kind of thing that helps us leave this place and be the kind of people that look like and talk like and live like that. So God, would you help us with this? Would you brand it on our hearts, as you said in Jeremiah's day? And in the end, it is, it is about what you do in and through us as individuals, as families, as a, as a corporate body. And it's about what you're doing in this world. We just want to join you. So show us where we can join you in what you're doing in this world. And we'll give you praise because you're the one who deserves it as we've already sung today. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today, everybody. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. You're dismissed.